Here comes the sun, and here comes Main FM's Radiothon, kicking off winter solstice when the days get longer and the music gets stronger. Community radio has never been more important, and we're asking you to dig deep and show your support for the best little station in the nation. Tune in the 20th to the 27th of June for a full week of Radiothon with a bounty full of prizes up for grabs. To subscribe, call 54724376 or go to mainfm.net. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Thank you for joining me on another edition of The Quiet Carriage. It's another beautiful day here in Castlemaine. A little bit chilly, but beautiful nonetheless. And what a winter we are having. And I hope it's nice wherever you may be listening to us out there. Things are warming up in the book industry with restrictions slowly lifting. A reminder that 94.9 Main FM's Radiothon is just around the corner. It's being held June 20 to June 27. Um, I'm My episode is on June 26, Friday, June 26 at this time, Friday 1pm, and I'll be dedicating the entire episode to Castlemaine-based author Kirsten Crowth, whose novel Almost a Mirror has been going absolutely gangbusters for her. Um, so I'm really happy to announce that for Radiothon. I'll also be giving, uh, offering a little bit of a giveaway as well. So it's going to be, it's going to be a huge day. Please get ready to subscribe and keep my show going and also to keep the station on the air because there's so many other great shows that we play on 94.9 Main FM. A reminder also about our sponsor, Stoneman's Book Room. They're open for business as usual. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day of the week. So please support them. For now, though, on with the show. Later on, it's time for the TQC Book Club. And my guest is the artist Stanislava Pinchuk, a.k.a. Miso. First up, we had normally broadcast Northern Books Books at the Brewery event from the Tap Room. However, with that temporarily on hold, uh, the Wheeler Centre, which is Melbourne's Centre for Literature, have very kindly stepped in and allowed us to delve back into their archives and play some of their old interviews. This one here is from a man, an author, who needs no introduction, but I'll give him a little one, a little bit of a one anyway. Um, he's the two-time Booker Prize Award winner for The True History of the Kelly Gang and also for Oscar and Lucinda. He is, of course, Peter Carey. And here he is in conversation with Michael Williamson. Good evening and welcome to the Deacon Edge, to this very special Wheeler Centre event. Lovely to see so many of you out this evening for tonight's guest. Judging from your applause, you're in the right place and you probably don't need a lengthy introduction, uh, but he is one of our finest writers, the author of 19 books, uh, three-time winner of the Miles Franklin Award. Did I get that wrong, 19? It's fine, stay with it. Yeah, we'll stick with it? Stay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly the author of 19 books, uh, three-time winner of the Miles Franklin Award, two-time winner of the Man Booker Prize, uh, and an extraordinary writer, please, once again, welcome, Peter Carey. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we're lucky enough to have Peter back here amongst us to talk about his new book, Amnesia. But it has to be said, reading the book, it feels like you've never been that far away from us at all. It is, amongst many things, uh, a love letter to Australia and to, uh, in particular, bits of Melbourne in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. Is it vivid in your mind, the time and place? Yes, it is very. I, I, I think I didn't know how, how... One doesn't know until one starts to think about it and make notes and write things down and tell lies a little bit. Uh, and so, yes, it is really there. And even though I have to confess I ran away to Sydney in 1973, 
Um, that part of my life in Melbourne is very, very close to my heart. And of course, I, I grew up in Bacchus Marsh, where Melbourne was the big, big city. I used to get a headache just coming here. And when I was a teenager, it was so terrifying. I'd come on the train and sort of walk up, you know, Burke Street or Collins Street and go around the block and come back and make sure the station was still there. Uh, the enormous size of the city was uh, overpowering. Anyway, I sort of grew up here in a way. It's, you should be warned that moving to New York is acceptable, moving to Sydney is unforgivable. That's tough, so, yes, I know, um, I know. I used to, to listen to John Cain's speeches at the Premier's Awards. Uh, uh, <laughs> chastising. Oh, right? Yes, on, on that very subject. Uh, fair enough too. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Bacchus Marsh, and I'm going to ask a question that comes very much from your new book, Amnesia. Tell us about magpie season in Bacchus Marsh. As oh, my God, yes. Well, see, there are certain traumas I mean, this book is about a sort of a trauma, but there's certain childhood traumas, of course, which the whole question of the dunny, as we call it, was way up the back. You, the, 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 the classroom was at the front, near Lerderdurg Street. Um, if you wanted to go to the dunny, you had to go. And during the magpie season, those magpies were very fierce. And everyone got running up, waving a stick around their head, these little boys and girls running up like this and coming back with blood streaming down their faces and kids who'd be too nervous to take their business up there, did it in their pants rather than face the magpies. Um, I'm perhaps exaggerating and perhaps, but I do remember, I remember the smell. <laughs> so, yes. It, it forms a vivid description in the book because your central character, Felix Moore, is a journalist who uh, is the son of used car dealers from Bacchus Marsh, shares certain things with your, your own biographical details. A lot. Then deviates. A lot. Well, not biographical, more geographical, probably. Is that just provoking uh, lazy critics who always want to see you in your character? Well, you know, whenever I've written a book, and I'm always really pleased and excited and proud to make stuff up, and so when I go to all this trouble to invent a character and a person like that, and I discover that Oscar in Oscar and Lucinda is really me, and that the poor little deformed Tristan Smith who lives inside a mouse suit is really me, and that great brawling painter from Bacchus Marsh, Butcher Bones, has to be me. Um, I just thought with this book I might just put all my biographical stuff and give them to this character uh, because it must be really obvious it's not me. <laughs> so he, he, he's, born, he's born in Bacchus Marsh and I'll go up to Bacchus Marsh on Friday night and, and, and I'll have to face my sister who will have read this and she'll know that people will think that our mother disappeared from our life that our father couldn't think about it and would weep, weep every time he was talked, he was spoken to about it. And of course, this is not true, but I've warned her that I've done it once again. I read in an earlier interview that your sister was really the only one in your family who did read your books. Is that...? Well, my, my, yes, my, 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 my mother thought that was generally rather bad form and my sister was sort of sucking up. Uh, and... Uh, and I, and I, and I, I do remember a, a certain, well, my mother didn't want to make too much fuss on me. She thought that was bad and you didn't do that. She didn't want me to be a big noise. Uh, and uh, so I do remember a certain occasion uh, uh, sitting with her and some local women and one woman said, oh, you, it was after the Booker Prize. She said, they said, you must be so proud of Peter. And she said, yes. Every mother has her favourite son. Mine is Paul. <laughs> so she she was uh, she was herself. <laughs> the um, but you first had the experience of being an expatriate, not from Australia but from Bacchus Marsh, going to Geelong, uh, ah, which yes. is a nice early betrayal. Yeah. Can you? Well, that was. It's weird to think about it. It's sort of one of those things, as a child, I always knew lay ahead of me. And, and that I was going to this place where people spoke in sort of, often in, well, in my brother's rendition, because he'd been there earlier, in, in sort of English accents and called each other by their surnames. And 
um, and it was a boarding school and I was going away from home, but I knew it was, there was no escaping it, you know, there was, wasn't anything. So I went and, uh, and I was decided to be a happy camper. But uh, the fact that as the only thing I've ever learnt from a critic, I think, is, is the observation that my books are always full of orphans. I always thought I was doing it because that was easier, because you didn't have to make up the rest of the family. But, but, but I think actually maybe going to Geelong Grammar at that age did pay its toll. And of course it was a change of class. And uh, to this day, I, I still, the, sort of the trauma of how, how one speaks, so to speak, yes, I, I spoke arriving at Geelong Grammar and the way I said certain words led to certain mockery, you know. So to this day, I still, I still uh, alternate between dance and dance, um, and castle and castle, where I was, I was informed incorrectly that only Americans say castle, which of course was very bad. Um, so it had, its it had its traumas, yes. You say, you say you decided to be a happy camper, but I read in an interview you did with the Paris Review, uh, you came across your report from your housemaster at Geelong Grammar in 1960, who said you were very intense and serious-minded. He needs to have his leg pulled and learn to laugh at himself. Yeah. It may be better to concentrate on the pure maths next term. <laughs> well, that's what comes from being misunderstood. <laughs> it, was, it, it was in fact my housemaster who, who, uh, who had discovered a book by C.P. Snow called The Two Cultures and so which he, the title makes it obvious if you don't know the, the work that, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a fair enough point, you know, that, you know, the, the humanities and the sciences seem to be separated and people who are literate in one are often not literate in the other. And uh, because I was a, I just used to argue with him all the time about this because he sort of irritated me. And uh, so he, he got, needs to have his leg pulled well. <laughs> I like you've proved him wrong. <laughs> get stuff. Oh, well, it was a report from the, the headmaster that said, must be careful, he doesn't become a narrow-minded scientist. Congratulations. I'm, <laughs> I'm just narrow-minded, that's all. You avoided that fate. We're going to continue tracking through your biographical details because they continue to match Felix's at this point, going off to Monash he University. Did, but he didn't go to Geelong Grammar. No, that's true. He went he to went, high school in Ballarat. He jumped straight from Bacchus Marsh to Ballarat to Monash. That's you right. took mm. a sidestep, but mm. met up again in Monash. Monash University formed you, made you the man you are now? Made me the failure I am now. I, 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 uh, Failed silence. I, I, I was asked to, to, to speak at a commencement, uh, whatever they're called, ceremony at Monash and graduation, and I said, well, I know why I've been asked here. I've been asked here to talk about failure and the uses of failure because all, that's all that ever happened to me at Monash University where I failed my first year. Anyway, the, 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 uh, the, I think the people in the audience were very intense and, and it looked like they were more commerce students <laughs> who, who didn't really appreciate the notion of failure at all and their, their parents looked even less happy. Um, the faculty enjoyed the speech, but I don't think anybody <laughs> else did. Uh, so, you know, I went to Monash for a year. It can hardly, if, I don't know what effect it had on me, except, you know, I came out of a boys' boarding school and was suddenly not in a boys' boarding school, and, and that was exciting. And, and um, I failed all my exams and crashed my car. And then they gave me supplementary examinations, so I failed them all again. Uh, and um, that was sort of it, really. The, the, the exciting thing about Monash were people like the zoology people, like Jock Marshall, and, and they, they bought paintings. Uh, and and helped, we, they bought paintings by Cliff Pugh. And we all, the students, helped choose the one that they, they were going to have. And so they were an interesting sort of bohemian sort of lot, really. So I think they were instructive.
That was Credence Clearwater Revival with Have You Ever Seen the Rain? And now we'll return to part two of Peter Carey's performance at the Wheeler Center, where he talks a little bit about his views on Australian history. In November 1975, mm. you were working in advertising. In Sydney. Uh, in Sydney yeah. at that point. Oh. For a communist? For a communist? I, well, I read in one interview. No, mostly I, worked for, I worked for a lot of communists. <laughs> Uh, this particular agency was Grey Advertising. The first time I worked for Grey was for Ralph Blunden, who'd been a member of the Communist Party, but he, 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 he was gone by then. So, no, it was run by American capitalists. <laughs> so much the better. The, I come, of course, to 1975 and November 1975 because one of the catalysts of this new book, um, and it seems apt given the events of this week, is the Whitlam dismissal. Mm -hmm. um, What's your memories of that day? Well, the funny, I don't remember the day, although I should. I remember being in Melbourne, actually, and Grey Advertising had been a very boring advertising agency, and we turned it around in about two years, and we came down here to win more prizes in the Campaign Palace, and we were very happy. But it was also just after the dismissal, and I don't know, I remember making some speech from the stage about that, which I don't think anybody was very interested in, but I was. Um, I was very, very angry, like a lot of people, and it seemed impossible that we should tolerate that. And I thought that the um, upper house uh, refusing supply was, in my understanding, unconstitutional, but our press didn't really want us to look at it that way very much. And it's generally interesting when one looks at the papers in the last couple of days, and if you want to go back and look at the papers from 1975, and so if you see the newspapers with the huge, glorious colour portraits of Goff, um, a position that he deserves in our hearts, or of my heart at least, after three years only of Prime Minister, and inside the tributes to him, well, you look at those papers in 1975, and they're the ones that are helping, assisting seriously in his downfall by spreading misinformation and da 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 da. So I don't know what we make about that, about why he can be deified today and uh, brought down by them then. The, the anger that you felt is, is palpable in this book, that you continue to feel about those events. And it's anger and it's a kind of grief at the way in which he was treated. Were you a... Were you would you characterise yourself at the time as being very political? I know you're involved in the Vietnam moratorium. Well, you see, there's nothing like, there's nothing like uh, the thought that you or possibly your friends are going to be conscripted and killed to make you take a really active interest in politics and uh, to want to know why exactly somebody would want to do that. And I was one of those people. And so, as I think kids today, who people have talked about us not being very political, are looking, are looking at the fate of the human habitat and seeing that their future cannot really be assured and certainly not those of their children. And they're becoming very political because of that, that thing that apparently doesn't happen, you know, of climate change and global warming. Uh, so they've become political too. But yes, I was political for, I became political for that reason. I was uh, in Melbourne on the moratorium committee. Um, I kept those sort of politics. I kept that sort of high functioning level of paranoia. Um, and when I was in Sydney later working for, working for American capitalists, uh, I, I, I still had those feelings and those beliefs. Talk to me a bit more about paranoia, because one of the interesting things in this book uh, is, uh, is characters, particularly Felix, but other characters' conviction that uh, dastardly things are afoot, that there's conspiracy going on. One of the characters, Celine Bellew, has a moment where she shoots a bird, assuming that it's a drone, mm. and it's kind of laughable and sympathetic that she's so paranoid. And not three chapters later do we see a bird that is a drone. Mm. Um, you seem to be suggesting, at least in fiction, that conspiracy theories should not be too easily dismissed. I, 
really, word conspiracy theory is really often because it seems like it's sort of something wrong in that. You know, if, if it's a conspiracy theory, no one ever conspires to affect anything. And of course, there are huge, at least in the United States, you know, government agencies whose job with vast car parks full of employees who go to work every day and have superannuation and if they're lucky healthcare whose job it is to conspire and, 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 and to you know, help affect by whatever means uh, what's seen as the, 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 the national good of the United States. So of course things like that happen all the time. And certainly if you, if you, if you, if you think about how the Americans must have felt when uh, that Labour government came to power and they had to listen to Australian cabinet ministers and all sorts of people sort of calling them mass murderers, that would have been really, really shocking because we hadn't been in the habit of doing that sort of thing. And so if they bombed Cambodia, somebody said something. We withdrew our troops from Vietnam, recognised China, did a lot of things that they really didn't like. And then there was Jim Cairns, um, who was, of course, a treasurer who, who was much criticised on the left for trying to make capitalism work so well, uh, and was known certainly in, in Washington as a communist, had probably been a Marxist, but he was a deputy prime minister. If, if, Goff, if Goff had died, we would have had a communist leading us. And, and I think that, that would really worry them. Uh, and then on top of which, of course, that, that old base up at Pine Gap is really useful today, maybe more useful now. If you want to, if you want to deliver a drone somewhere, probably Pine Gap might be essential for you to do that. And Goff, perhaps recklessly and foolishly, you know, did say, when, when, when the, the lease on this base was about to expire, did say to them, maybe it was the ambassador, Marshall Green, I don't know who he said it to, that uh, he would be inclined to renew the base, but if they tried to bounce us, um, he would reconsider the position. And they, so he, 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 he's a very internationally minded man, and he threatened a great power. Uh, I don't think they like that. And we have all sorts of evidence. Uh, there's a cable that was uh, not really pub made public until 1977, where you, you, you see the CIA in a panic with ASIO that Whitlam's not behaving the way they want. And on that particular occasion, Whitlam, Whitlam was revealing that the head of the, of, the, of, the, of the base at Pine Gap was in fact a CIA guy. And that's something that the you know, United States had been denying there was any CIA people in Australia. And, and, and I think, as I recall it, the, the, cable, the cable from the CIA is sort of complaining about having to provide fresh alibis for the people at the embassy who were you know, in defence or whatever they were meant to be in. There's so, many, so much evidence of this. And we've had, we've had years and years to talk about it. And the sad truth is, I think, that the minute anybody says the sort of things that I'm saying now, then I'm a sort of a loopy leftist, paranoid conspiracist uh, who's, oh, <laughs> who doesn't even live here anymore. So, um, but You'll be on a watch list now, you know that, don't you? Sorry? You'll be on a watch list now. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and the Murdoch press has continued to maintain this position. You know, every now and then, was it the 40th anniversary? Well, I can't even do my math. 30th. You know, they were saying, you know, there were, there were no consp you know, conspiracies and da, 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 da. So they just keep on saying it, and they will keep on saying it. And I think the evidence is there. I mean, the the, one of the great things that, the, do you, well, who remembers the Kemlani loan affair or even what it was or how it all happened? But there was, there was a notion, a ridiculous, ridiculous, stupid notion that we would actually own our own national resources. And we know that's bad uh, and, and, and pathetic anyway. And, and that, uh, with the, um, 
various ministers in the government were trying to raise money, some more expertly than others. And there was a man who got himself involved in this with the name of Kemlani. And, um, and maybe he was a CIA stooge or maybe he was something. But anyway, they tried to raise... And, and, and the deal with Kemlani, as I recall, was that the Labour ministers would get huge sort of commissions from these millions of dollars of loans. Anyway, so Kemlani, in the middle of all these scandals that kept on erupting every day, Kemlani arrives in the country and he has two huge briefcases stuffed full of paper, which is the evidence of the venality and criminality of the Labour Party and the Labour government. And he's surrounded by police because presumably the evidence could be stolen by a waterside worker or something. And, and so that was very dramatic and really convincing. But if you want to follow the, that news story, that's it. There was nothing in the bags. There was no story. There was nothing. And so there was a lot of, a lot of that sort of stuff went on. So what might we understand about the Australian character by the fact that these events happened, our mm. Prime Minister was removed in a bloodless coup, mm. as has often been said, and yet nothing came of it. Yeah, and we uh, forgot. Well, also, our, our, the leader of the ACLU uh, persuaded everybody that they shouldn't do anything about it. I'd forgotten his name. But uh, I think it might have been Bob Hawke, actually. Um, anyway, that's another aside. Um, hmm. Our character? I don't know. I mean, I think there's something in the way we've lived and, and, and the way I can We couldn't really, I think, accept the notion that our great friend and ally would do such a thing, which is why when the, uh, the Murdoch press made it sound a ridiculous idea, we wanted to believe that because it's more comfortable uh, to believe that. I think we don't have a history, we're blessed, apart from our sort of unsuccessful attempt to exterminate the Aboriginal people, uh, we, we, we have been blessed with little internal conflict and bloodshed. Um, the blood has not stained the wattle many times. And so I don't know whether we had preparedness to sacrifice everything for the so the sort of upheaval a resistance to that would have entailed. Certainly, we do know that John Kerr had the, had the army on the ready. That's not a paranoid conspiracy theory. That's something that's documented. So what sort of person would then encourage people to resist this when you sort of know there's going to be the consequences of this would be really serious civil strife? We were not going to do that. Uh, I wonder if, you know, if we'd been a nation, you know, built, established. This is, by the way, this is not to glorify America in any sense, but it's just to talk about their resistance to the British and how they gained that level of independence. Uh, whether that was in our character or it wasn't in our history.
sun, Main FM's Radiothon is commencing on winter solstice when all the days are going to get a little bit longer and a little bit brighter. We're going to be asking you to reach into your pocket and subscribe to your favourite and award-winning community radio station Main FM. We need you like never before. Community radio has never been more important to you. So tune in between the 20th and the 27th of June. Subscribe by ringing 54724376 or simply go into mainfm.net. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. After Peter Carey's interview with the Wheeler Centre, we had Ariel Pink with their track Another Weekend. And now on The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, it's time for one of my favourite segments of the month, the TQC Book Club. And this is where I interview an artist, someone who isn't an author, um, about some of the books that have influenced their work, that have influenced their career. And today I'm very happy to welcome Stanislav Pinchuk onto, uh, onto the show. You may know her work, uh, she might be better known to you as Miso. Now I want to read to you a little bit about her. Stanislava Pinchuk is an artist working with data mapping, the changing topographies of war and conflict zones. Her work is produced in full independence and surveys how landscape holds memory and testament to political events spanning drawing, installation, installation tattooing, film and sculpture. Now, she's had exhibitions and appeared at the Louvre in Paris, the National Gallery of Australia. She's also been featured in Forbes magazine, in Vogue, in ID Mag. Uh, she's also done a TED Talk. This year, later on in the year, her work will be featured in exhibitions at the Sydney Opera House. At the, She's having her own retrospective at the Heidi Gallery. And next year, she has a solo exhibition in Melbourne at Acme. She has over 100,000 followers on Instagram. And I am so happy to have her on the show. Stanislava Pinchuk. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the TQC Book Club. And I have to ask you, how has uh, this whole coronavirus been for you as an artist? Yeah, I mean, it's a very precarious and difficult time in the arts, I think, wherever you are, um, especially someone who works with institutions and museums a lot of uh, mm. it's been a big curveball but I think I don't know at the same time I think we're really used to being uh, precarious and living a little bit hand to mouth and yeah. um, kind of making do and being quite resourceful so yeah I think in a in a way I've kind of enjoyed the time and I think I was a little bit burnt out and I, I yeah I'm kind of taking the blessings and yeah. negotiating the crises and putting out the fires but I yeah, I'm seeing the good, I think. Yeah, it's making everything slow down is what I'm seeing, and it's not not a bad thing, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's been very comforting to me to see people turn to the arts in such a huge way, you know, from records to yes. TV shows to streaming to artworks to, to, books. Re- to reading, you know, <laughs> yeah. to books, big time, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Myself included, you know, yeah. And that's why we're here. On the line Ooh. to talk about books because you gave me and I do you mind me reading out the the bit of the list of books that you gave me because I did find it fascinating. Um, of course. Yeah. So you had uh, and to be honest, <laughs> a lot of these I did not know. By the way, I'm not afraid to say, <laughs> Martha Gellhorn was one. The Face of War. Which oh yeah. I did not know. Is that a novel? No, it's a bunch of collected writings from her war correspondence over, I think, about four or five decades through her whole life, and completely sublime writing and, yeah, really, really instrumental, I think, to my practice. So she was a journalist? Yes, a war journalist. Yeah, right. 
Right. And then next on the list was uh, Bulga... I can't say it. Bull Gekov, who I have heard of, but you can yeah. say it better than me. Um, Gogol, <laughs> Gogol and uh, yeah. Chekhov, of course, the probably the king of short stories, even now, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, Bull, yeah, Bulgakov and Gogol, you know, I'd be a bad Ukrainian if I didn't. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, Chekhov, always yes. brilliant and, yeah, such a joy. The first two I haven't read, but but Chekhov, of course, I've read. Um, the next was the Poetics of Space by Bacalard. Is that how you say? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm rereading that at the moment, actually. Yeah. Um, God, what a, if I could live inside a book? I think it would be that one. Wow, really? Okay. And uh, you had uh, Sufi poetry, uh, the Rabia of Basra. Um, oh yes. Yep. Yeah. And is it Rumi? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Forever. And then you had Patty Smith's M Train, which I do know and I have read. And I I thought about this a lot, and I, I actually preferred the first book, um, Just Kids. Mm. Uh, was that with Was it Maplethorpe, her her friend, her artist friend? Yes. I, I, yes. I think it was Robert Maplethorpe. I really enjoyed that. Um, but I, I find M Train very good. That was all mostly about her time in New York, wasn't it? Moving to New York as a young lady. Yeah, it was this very beautiful kind of meandering through time and place and mm-hmm. kind of a love letter to, I guess, other artists and writers and I mm. guess the people she kind of sees as saints. I've been thinking a lot about that book because I've been writing a book in the sort of isolation time. Um, and it's such a beautiful way of meandering through kind of time and space. Yeah. I, I found myself going back to thinking about that. And um, in a way, I, it's what I expected Just Kids to be, you know? I thought it would be a lot more like her poetry and a lot more kind of um, visceral. And mm. I, I was quite, quite surprised at almost how conventional Just Kids was yeah and I, I just think it should be on every high school curriculum yeah. you know it was just such a wonderful story of you know like your first burst of creativity and love and mm. kind of making of worlds and um but it's what i kind of what m train was and it's kind of looseness and poetics and what I, I i kind of thought just kids would be mm. so I, I was quite happy to read it i think yeah it was wonderful yeah and then we had uh slitvana alexovich chernobyl prayer Mm. And that that won a Nobel Prize, is that right? Um, she has won a Nobel yeah. Prize for her work. I'm not sure if that was the book that um, qualified her, but it was a yeah incredible resource for me working in Chernobyl. Uh, and there's something about right. her writing that I find so kind of covers so many taxonomies and disciplines, and she's so academic but so kind of free at the same time and. Um, yeah, that was that, right. that book really, yeah, it was a really great companion to me while I was working in the zone. Wow, yeah. And then uh, Truman Capote, Joan Didion, don't need too much of an introduction there. And then Nick Cave, his lyrics, oh, yeah. you said, were, were actually a huge inspiration to you as an artist. Yeah, I mean... God, like, what a what a man to make you dream. But um, yeah. it's funny, I'm sitting next... The book that I recommended, actually, was um, The Lyrics, which I'm actually sitting next to by mm. coincidence. Um, and I also had... I turned to that book because every time I... You know, I'm a visual person. I'm not a... I'm not so much a person of words by habit. Mm-hmm. I'm a person of images. So, uh, yeah, I really turned to a book of his lyrics every time I'd struggle to title a show or an artwork um, or even as a palette cleanser because I think he just covers so many worlds and narratives mm. and ways of thinking and um, kind of thematically he's so broad but so deep. So, mm. yeah, always kind of, I just let the words wash over me and usually kind of find what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he's kind of been really helpful to me in pretty much naming every show. Yeah, yeah. And the one I thought we would delve into was actually a letter. So it was Epicurus, letter to, how do you say, Minosius? Your guess is as good as mine. Right, okay, well, that's good. (laughs) Well, it was written a very long time ago. Was it, I got 309 BC, 
around about then. Yes, yeah. Um, I guess it stuck out to me because I've got really into, over the last couple of years, the Stoics, in particular mm. um, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. Um, there seems to be a real resurgence in that, in these old writings again. In terms of the Stoics, Ryan Holiday, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's sort of reinterpreted them, and he does a daily newsletter called The Daily Stoic, which I find particularly useful. I hadn't read this one before, Epicurus. I think I have read bits and pieces, but I wouldn't have known it was it was from him. What what appeals here for you? What what sticks out for you? Why does it mean so much to you and your, your art? Um, I mean, I must say I... I uh... I come from the philosophy faculty, so mm-hmm. I'm very partial to the Greeks. But out of all of them, I always loved Epicurus because he survives, you know, in these kind of, these very romantic slivers from from other people, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, out of, I think all of the Greeks, in a way for me, he's aged the best. And I feel he's so, um, he's so underappreciated or mm-hmm. under acknowledged I think for how kind of epically timeless he is mm-hmm. um, and it's it's Epicurus and the, the kind of collected writings of Epicurus are the ones that I come back to I think every couple of years when I kind of need to reorient myself mm-hmm. um, or every time I kind of go against my own instincts or I'm kind of out of my depth in something and I reread yeah. them and I always feel like um, I always expect him to push me further, but he always kind of reminds me that I've always got the answer. And so he's kind of this, since I first read it, I think I would have been maybe 16, 17 years old. Um, right. I've just come back to it time and time and time again. And um, yeah, there's something very kind of, there's something very special about Epicurus, I think, even in the way that. He ran his school with, you know, he let women in, he had, you know, sex workers. He mm-hmm. kind of, um, I don't know, I think he was kind of very different even in that society. And um, But the way he kind of really lived with pleasure and pain and the reality of life and human instinct and desire and need and, um, I don't know, I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's quite exceptional, I think. It's mm. almost, I don't know, there's a lot of almost Buddhist yeah. idea in him for me. Yeah. It was amazing to think it was written that long ago. I mean, imagine if you'd told him back then that 2,300 <laughs> years on, we would be talking about it on a radio show in Castlemaine. Yeah. It's pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> in Australia, which they didn't even know existed then. Yeah, it's 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 incredible that it's lasted that long. You, you said you were 16, 17 when, it, when you first read it. How did something like this fall into your lap back then? Um, I think I've always been an absolutely avid reader. Mm-hmm. Um, really voracious. And um, yeah, I think I'd always been quite an academic kid I always thought I'd be in the philosophy faculty mm-hmm. um, I didn't really mean to have an art career so uh, it's what I studied and um, mm-hmm. yeah so I think I obviously started with the big ones and Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all the rest and uh, kind of found this a little bit later I guess and, mm-hmm. and having... yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's the one I it's the one I still reread yeah you know, out of anybody and um, I was reading some Aristotle the other night in my book research and yeah, I just found it kind of aged, well, the, the part that I was reading kind of hadn't aged very well. And, uh, right, yeah, find, yeah. Yeah, Epicure is such a kind of oddity even in, in that world. Yeah, yeah. So your grounding is in philosophy. How, how, does, um, that, how does that feed into your, your art that you do today? Yeah, it's funny. I um. I was kind of making art by the time I went to university and I think I was kind of bolshy and like Mm -hmm. a bit of a piece of shit and I just thought, you know, um, I'd rather study what to kind of paint about rather than how to paint, you know, and I always thought if I kind of really needed that support, I could go back and do a master's in art school. But I, I always thought that 
grading an artwork was a slightly preposterous idea, and I guess I kind of still do in a way. Yeah, right. And, um, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to learn how to think, and I wanted to learn how to read, and I kind of wanted to learn about the history of ideas and mm-hmm. how to place making in that. Um, and so I'm kind of proud of myself when I was 18 that I made the decision to to go get a degree in this instead. And I think it's actually really grounded me mm-hmm. as an artist in having an understanding of maybe kind of a bigger concept or a bigger communications and mm-hmm. just the joy of making or the joy of the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Does that I think, make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think it's a fantastic grounding to have, definitely. And you said that you are currently writing a book. Is this your, your first book? Well, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, my boyfriend, uh, who you've had on your show... Ennis Chet, yeah, sitting right behind me, really <laughs> likes to teach me about making picture books, mm-hmm. and then all the books in my apartment are picture books. Oh, right. Um, so I've published maybe, I don't know, something like six books, I think. Oh, right, before, wow, yep. Uh, which, which do have varying levels of text, but are, are kind of centred around mm-hmm. uh, visuals and artworks and monographs. Um, so this is kind of my first book as really extended text. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite exciting and it really actually makes me feel like I'm in university again, mm-hmm. um, going full circle um, and kind of sharpening that tool again of writing essays that have kind of fallen off a little bit, which has been really exciting. Yeah. Um, but it's a book that's been commissioned by the Welcome Museum in London um, about kind of the history of women's tattooing right. uh, yeah. and kind of... The story of tattooing told through its parallels with textiles, ceramics, interiors, childbirth, village medicine, pain, rites of passage, and kind of a lot of things that we don't really talk about when we talk about tattooing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, which is really exciting. And I feel like it's been a book that's been in me for about 10 years, and it's really nice to be challenged to actually write it. I feel like it's the PhD I'll never write. Right, yeah. I've really been enjoying it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and what are you reading now that's in, that's inspiring you? Anything in particular? Um, I must say I'm just reading kind of uh, with book research. I must say it's just PhD after mm-hmm. PhD after PhD. And last week I read one that was so wonderfully niche and kind of actually quite epic called um, The Mountain Women Tattoos and Spoon Boxes of Dagestan. Wow. Uh, so it's getting... <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I do love the specificity of a PhD. Yeah, um, yeah. That's great. Uh, and that, that actually really, really rocked my world. Um, uh, but otherwise, I'm reading um, a compilation of Japanese short stories uh, from Penguin. Right. Uh, and I'm reading Neil McGregor's Living with the Gods, the director of the British Museum. Okay, yeah. And uh, I've, got, I've got about six books on the go. At yeah. um, I'm kind of dipping in and out, which I, I don't always love to do, but um, mm. here we are. Well, we've got a lot of time at the moment. I guess, <laughs> I guess that's one good thing. What, um, what's the, the second half of your, your year looking like? Have you, do you have anything coming up because of the, the crisis? Uh, well, everything's in the absolutely great unknown at okay. the moment. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I've kind of had two career survey exhibitions with museums that are um, kind of on tentative hold uh, and some new works that I wanted to produce that are kind of international works. And um, I was scheduled to shoot a film uh, that was a global shoot, which is my first Okay, film. yeah. Um, in a couple of months, so I was about to head into pre-production after writing this book, which mm-hmm. is, of course, on hold. Um, but I think it'll only make the mm-hmm. film better, and um, as painful as it is to kind of uh, set the dream aside for the moment, I actually think it'll be in the best interest of the film. Yeah. Um, and I've got some uh, kind of fieldwork and research that I've been doing in, uh, in Bosnia, uh, while Ennis and I have been there over the last year, and so Yevo was um, 
women's tattoos in Bosnia, Mm -hmm. uh, an exhibition there for the National Museum. I'm still kind of chipping away at the drawings uh, and the writing as well. So, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to know how everything will get rescheduled and Mm. uh, the new order of things. But... um, yeah, it's a strange Yeah, hopefully sign. it'll all serve to make the work better. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Stanislava, thank you so much for giving up your time and being part of the TQC Book Club. Where can we find out more about your work? Do you have a website? Yeah, com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's me. Excellent. I just redid it. It looks very hard. Go have a look. I had I had a peek. I'm I'm very impressed, and I'm going to redo mine. <laughs> Paste around yours. It's very good. Thanks for having me, Paul. No. It looks really great to talk about books. It has been. Thank you so much. Lifehouse are designers of simple, serene buildings. We craft spaces and forms that are sympathetic to the environment in which we live and to the needs of our clients. That connect with the eye, mind, and soul. Our firm of designers focus on the best energy efficient outcomes producing beautiful, unique buildings. Contact us to discuss your project. You can find us at lifehousedesign.com.au. Lifehouse Design, creating smaller footprints, award-winning passive solar design, and a proud supporter of Main FM. That is all we have time for on The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors. A huge thank you to my guest, Stanislav Pinchuk, and to the Wheeler Centre for letting me play their Peter Carey interview. Radiothon is coming June 20 to June 27. Please put it in your diaries. Next week, we're moving away from fiction, just temporarily, and we have U.S. psychologist Benjamin Hardy on the show to talk about his new book, Personality Isn't Permanent, out now via Penguin. We're on Fridays from 1 p.m. Uh, You can listen to all old episodes of the show on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. I'm across all the socials. You can visit my website on pauljlaverty.com for more details. After another crazy week in politics, I'm going to leave you the track What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep reading. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate You know we've got to find a way To bring some love and get here today Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see
What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. 